Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Last week we were in Matthew's gospel. This week we're in Luke's gospel. It's been an interesting week for me. It's been a reflective week. Last Sunday marked the 10th anniversary of my time here at Rocky Mountain Bible Church. We drove all day Wednesday, cooked all day Thursday. I came to the office Friday and Saturday and preached on Sunday, 10 years ago. Yesterday I turned 37. I feel old. I don't want to say how old because there are some older in the room. Uh, those two things together did a weird thing in my head and in my heart this week because I have felt off and on on occasions like these. I wouldn't call it melancholy, but I've asked the question of myself, uh, have I done enough? Have I done enough in the Word? Have I done enough for the Gospel? Have I done enough for our church? Those questions have kept me awake at night. <laughs> but I had the privilege of preparing for this Sunday by reading Luke chapter 1. And particularly the story of the Annunciation to Mary that she would bear the Christ. And I learned an incredible lesson in the time that I spent observing the angel coming to Mary and Mary's response and her time with Elizabeth and all the rest. I learned an incredible thing because of the kind of story that it is. Last week we asked the question, uh, what kind of story are we looking at and we, when we think about the story of Jesus coming in human flesh and God becoming man and ruling and teaching and, and we eschewed that idea of the Lifetime movie, right? Um, lady from the big city moves to the country, meets a lumberjack, falls in love. That's every Christmas movie, kind of. We said that the story that we have is actually much more dynamic. The type of story that we're looking at here is maybe more literarily speaking an epic of massive proportions. God intervening in history to do unconscionable wonders for, by his grace, the benefit of all those who would respond in faith. It's a, an incredible, momentous event in history. If, if history is a great tent, then the three tent poles which hold it up are creation and the first advent and the second. This is what we're looking at in the story of Christmas. We ask that question, what kind of story is it as we observed Joseph and his response to the prophecy being fulfilled that the son of David would be born and would be born to his young betrothed. But this week we're asking a slightly different question. It's not what kind of story, what kind of story we're looking at at Christmas, but whose story are we looking at at Christmas? I'm so easily distracted, and I'm so easily tempted to look at passages like this one and to extol the virtues of Joseph and Elizabeth, and particularly this week, Mary. And Mary is an incredible figure, and we'll get to see that over the next few minutes. 
But it's not Mary's story. Mary plays an important role, but it's God's story. It's Christ's story. And all week long as I asked myself the question, have I done enough? It was kind of God to remind me that maybe I haven't, but I'm a part of his story, and he's done more than enough. And that's the feel of the passage that we get in front of us here. We start in verse 26 of Matthew chapter 1. It's a long passage, and we'll make some observations along the way, but it starts like this. Matthew 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And there, in one verse, we have been introduced to one of the most prolific pillars of the New Testament world. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Remember last week we talked about Jesus being the name of God who saves us. And he will be great and he will be called son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end and Mary said to the angel how, how will this be since I am a virgin and the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, she who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, we could spend a tremendous amount of time in passages just like this one, but let's make a few observations and move through the rest of the story of Mary learning about this incredible event that's going to partake uh, years of her life. Before we learn anything about her, we really learn something about Jesus. He's called the Son of the Most High. Take a look again at verse 31. And behold, you will conceive and bear a son and call his name Jesus, this Savior. And he will be called Son of the Most High God. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign in the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. You'll remember a thousand years earlier, the Lord had appeared to David, the king of Jerusalem, the king over the kingdom of Israel, and he had made a promise to David. He had promised him, there is going to come one from your line, a great, 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 great grandson. And that one who is going to come from your line is going to rule on your throne, and, and he's not going to rule for a generation. He's not going to be worried about what sons he has and who comes next in the line of succession and all the rest. He will be the final king to reign on your throne, and he will reign forever. And ever and ever and ever. And your throne will persist in all eternity. 
And he's not just going to reign forever. He's going to reign forever in righteousness and peace. And he's going to transform the world, the entirety of the ball that he's going to rule over. This incredible promise is made. And then if you spend any amount of time in the Old Testament from that point onward, you know that there are high highs and low lows from the sons that come from David's line. But both of the gospel writers that we've seen so far are intensely concerned that you understand that the fulfillment of that promise made a millennium earlier is being fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, some of the exact same language that we find in the Old Testament is brought to bear in what we just read about this one who would reign forever. If you take notes, these are worth noting down somewhere. There's a summary of messianic hope here quoted from Micah 4.7. That's a good one to remember. Micah 4.7. You don't have to turn there, but let me read it to you, starting in verse 6. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame, I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. The eternal reign of the Messiah King. The angel was saying to Mary, this, your son, is that eternal king. Similar words found in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. And in those days, those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. That exact same language being applied in Luke chapter 1 by the angel Gabriel to speak of this child in Mary's womb. We learn an extraordinary amount about who Jesus is just in the annunciation to Mary, the announcement of who this child will be. This isn't some regular child. And he's not just proved that God is sovereign because of his miraculous birth. He is the sovereign God born miraculously to this virgin. We learn a lot about him, but we also learn a lot about Mary. She's inquisitive. Don't you love this question? Coming in verse 34, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now, uh, there's a quotation there from Isaiah chapter 7. If you were in Sunday school this morning, you may have heard a little bit about that. But understand what's happening here. There's no wavering in Mary's question. There's no lack of faith. There's no unbelief in asking how it's going to happen. She's deeply, deeply faithful. She's intensely obedient. Look at the way that she responds, verse 34. How will this be since I'm a virgin? And he tells her, verse 38, And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. However it's going to happen, let it happen. It's an incredible thing. An incredible thing. This young girl, middle of the night, angel comes, bright luminescence. What happens almost every single time an angel appears to the people in the New Testament? Do you know? They fear. They are overwhelmed. She's overwhelmed a little bit, too. It's interesting, several times in the New Testament when angels appear to mortals on the earth, the way they respond is, and they fell down as though they were dead. 
they passed out from the illuminescence of these incredible heavenly messengers. That Mary has the wherewithal not only to digest the information, but to ask a question, how is this going to happen? And he tells her some miraculous story. Well, actually, the Holy Spirit's going to bring it to bear. Okay, let it happen. Let it happen to me according to your word. Let it happen. Here we go. I'm ready. I am ready to respond in faith. I am ready to respond in obedience. I am ready to march forward into the will of God for my life. Mary, a young teenager, has just been given one of the most incredible tasks in all of history. She's been set on her role in the epic of God in the nativity, and she says, bring it on. I will do this in service to the Lord. Now, what's interesting here is her situation is not entirely unlike yours. Do you know that? Some of these narratives seem so far away. They're 2,000 years old. We've heard them over and over again. Those were miraculous times, and these are ordinary times. Those were the times when God came down in angels, and these are the times in which nothing so spectacular happens to any of us, right? Those were the days when God used people in incredible ways, and these are the days when God uses us in very boring ways. But think about it just for a moment. Your story is not entirely different from Mary's. She was tasked with bearing the Savior in her room. We have been given the responsibility to bear the Savior in our hearts and in our words and in our hands. She would carry him from Nazareth to Bethlehem. We have been given the task to bear him to the very ends of the earth. She would deliver Jesus into a stable, and we must deliver Jesus, the light of the world, into a world entombed in darkness. I want you to imagine just for a moment that you were there in the stable when Jesus was born, and here is Mary who has achieved this extraordinary thing by the power of the Holy Spirit, and here's the child, and she's wrapped him in swaddling cloths. Just born, right? Eyes barely opened. And what Luke chapter 1 is saying in all of these nativity passages, they're saying, she is taking that child and handing him right into your arms. And the question that she's asking, that this gospel writer is asking, what are you going to do with him now? Will you carry this message of Jesus to the places that God has assigned for you? Our story is not entirely different from Mary's. Well, in verse 39, we find it moving on this narrative. In those days, Mary arose, and she went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth, her cousin. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. I wouldn't use this, I think, as a great argument against abortion, but I don't think it's a bad one either. The child in Elizabeth's womb has been given by God the sentience to know that the one in Mary's womb is the royal king of anyway. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? 
For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. It's interesting what's happening here because there's a couple of layers to this. She goes and sees her cousin. There has been no unbelief in Mary whatsoever. But at some point, you would expect to find somebody who doesn't believe the whole thing. We just haven't met them yet. We've been introduced to figure after figure who says, you know what, okay, I'm in. Well, no, you don't understand that, the, oh, well, a miracle was actually wrought inside me as well. I should not have been able to have a child, but now I'm six months along. There is some parabolic evidence that this is coming to bear. And as soon as you walked up immediately within me, literally within me, I knew, I knew that you were bearing a child and that the child that you were bearing was the Messiah, the king from David's throne, the one who would save us from our sins keep waiting to find somebody who isn't full of faith and in the early chapters of the gospels i haven't found anybody yet but she does an extraordinary thing it's not just that she's recording history for us in gospel format there's a part of this where she is encouraging mary do you see that Mary has held on. Yes, I believe. Let it happen to me according to your word. And the very first person she goes to here in the text is her cousin Elizabeth. And what does Elizabeth say to her? Yes, it's happening. That's true. Carry on. How encouraging that is. Now, there have been a lot of days in my life when I faced circumstances that were well beyond my control. And I'll tell you, some days I've held on and some days I haven't. But I can tell you, on both of those days, I could have used somebody, a friend like Elizabeth, who was telling me, here is the truth. Hold on to the truth. Here I am encouraging you. Maybe you're that for somebody. Have you thought about that? Maybe you will be the Elizabeth to someone else's Mary. And maybe they're saying all the right things, and maybe they're doing all the right things. Maybe they're living in firm faith, but you, still, you have been put into their lives to encourage them, to remind them of the truth, to saturate them in truth. And that's exactly what's happened here in the life of Mary. Mary's held on. Mary has been virtuous. Mary has been full of faith. But it doesn't mean she didn't need someone like Elizabeth to come alongside her and say, I see it too. Keep going. Keep going. What hope does Mary have? Elizabeth tells her intensely. It's royal. We know that this child is coming is from the Lord. This is the Messiah, this miraculous one. It's salvific. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord, my Lord, should come to me? This baby leaped for joy, fulfillment of what was spoken from the Lord, the one who would save us from our sins. And it's personal. Elizabeth recognizes Mary's new role in the epic of the birth of Christ. If Catholics make too much of Mary, I wonder if we've made too little. We've let the pendulum swing too far the other way. I wonder if we should not recognize her as Elizabeth did, the mother of our Lord. This incredible figure, full of faith. Put me in. I'll do it now, according to your word. And then Mary sings a song. And this is where we'll spend the last few minutes together this morning. Mary sings a song starting in verse 46, and it's what C.J. and Michelle read this morning. 
my soul magnifies the Lord. To magnify. This is where we get this Latin word magnificat, that big word. Magnificat. I magnify. I'm magnifying the Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he, he has looked on my humble estate, the humble estate of his servant, from behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, and he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has exalted those of humble estate. And he has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich, well, he sent those away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Forever and ever. How does Mary respond? She writes a song. And, and it's not uncommon. There are songs throughout the Bible that people have written. Moses, in the first part of Exodus 15, writes a song, the song of Moses. Miriam, in the back half of Exodus 15, writes a song. You should remember that one. That's one of the great songs of the Old Testament. Deborah, in Judges chapter 5, she writes a song. And this is the one that you want to write down somewhere in your notes. Hannah, in 1 Samuel chapter 2. First 10 verses there, Hannah writes a song with a huge number of parallels between what she prays and sings and what Mary sings and prays here in Luke chapter 1. Let's make a, just a brief observation about Mary. The way that she reflects on the character of God in history is staggering at her age. It's staggering at any age. This child is 13, 14, 15 years old, maybe. She's never been sent to a formal school before. She's likely stayed at home with her mother learning how to keep the house. But she has devoted herself in such a way, familiarized herself, and I think this is a tribute to her parents and those on down the line, to know the word of God and not just to know it but to envelop it in faith so that when the day came when she needed it she had it ready access just like that when we think about what it means for our youth ministry to get off the ground and they're going to have their Christmas party tonight we have CJ and Laura and Courtney who help in there these are the kinds of goals that we're setting for them we want them to be as theologically astute and as practically faithfully minded as Mary is here in Luke chapter 1 what's the model what's the standard why not start at the top for young virtuous women like Mary why not stop, start at the top for young, faithful men just like Joseph? That's what we're working toward. Now look, the same thing's happening in your house that's happening in my house right now because we're T-minus two and a half or three and a half weeks from Christmas, right? If you have kids or you have grandkids, you've been getting a list. Have you seen the list? Some of you, I'm sure, have seen the list. And it's got toys and it's got tablets and it's got a football, and it's got, you know, on and on and on and on and on. 
And as our kids get older, man, those things get more and more expensive, right? They don't want a Nerf football. They want uh, an iPad and a pair of jeans that cost 100 bucks. And all right, look, you know what daddy does for a living. You're not getting the $100. Let's go to Target. Now look, parents. Parents this time of year and grandparents too will get up at four in the morning to get a great deal on something for their children but won't take them to Sunday school on Sunday morning. You'll spend $500 buying gifts for your kid. They're going to end up in a room cluttering the space up and you're going to say, I'm going to throw it all away. And you know what? You wouldn't spend $50 to buy them a study Bible. If anything you learn from the example of someone like Mary, it's this. We don't need to equip our children anymore on how to entertain themselves. You do need to equip your children how to handle what will invariably pop up in their lives with faith and obedience. We should invest at least as much in that as we do with buying them toys and buying them boots and buying them... Do you see this? If your child's put into the same situation as Mary, would they have responded in the exact same way? Do they have the tools at their ready? Have they been so saturated with Scripture that they could respond in such biblical ways? Let it be a wake-up call for grandparents and parents this morning. Give them what they really need. Equip them with the stuff that will actually bring them through this life. What does she say? What does she say? What's so remarkable about what she says? First, she says that she magnifies the Lord as Savior. Magnifying the Lord, verse 47, my soul magnifies the Lord. My soul rejoices in God, my Savior. Magnifying can mean one of two different things. Uh, ho hopefully you've picked up on this. There is magnification like a microscope magnifies. When I was in, uh, I think, high school, I got to go to the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base with a group of kids from my science class and see a scanning electron microscope. And we got to see down to little tiny things that you can't see with the naked eye. That is not the kind of magnifying we're talking about here, where you use a microscope and it makes something very small look very big. We're not talking about microscope magnification. We're talking about telescope magnification. You've seen a telescope before, I'm sure. Maybe you've even had one in your house, and you point it up to the stars and the planets out there in the sky, and it takes something that seems very, very small, very far away, and blows it up to reveal its actual grandeur and mass and size. When Mary says that her soul magnifies the Lord, she's not taking something small and making it big. She's taking something huge and bringing it to bear for all of those who would listen. She's magnifying the Lord. Secondly, she reflects on how the Lord has blessed her personally. Verse 48, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Who's that servant? She is. She is that servant. From behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, she says. First person. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. She's not bragging here. She is just reckoning with the motivation that she has to glorify and magnify the Lord. He has done things for me. 
it would be really good for some of the people in this room, I am sure, to start keeping a list of all the things that God has done for you. Individually, write it down on a piece of paper, because I know if you're anything like me, there are going to be days when you're going to say, I'm all alone. He's never given me anything. Why can't he hear me? I feel like I'm talking to the wall. Where is God in all of... And you can pull that thing out and be reminded, hey, guess what? He has done stuff for me. Mary did. Mary had a list. Mary knew that what was happening was a blessing to her personally. Thirdly, she reflects not just on how the Lord has blessed her individually, but on how the Lord has offered mercy to all those who fear him. Verse 50. And his mercy is for who? The select few. Only those who he's chosen, right? Uh, half a dozen maybe. In the no. His mercy is for anyone who would fear him. Not just now, but from generation to generation. Uh, in classical, on Tuesday mornings, I lead a devotional for all the kids, and we've been talking about wisdom. We've been talking about wisdom on Tuesday mornings. And we've used a verse to remind everyone of where wisdom starts, and it's Proverbs 9, 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The fear of the Lord. Anyone who fears Him is now drawn into this epic. It's an incredible thing. What happens to them? This is the fourth thing. She reflects on how the Lord has elevated the humble and crushed the proud. Take again a look at verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm and scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Mary is one of those. Mary was humble. This is not a story that's only told about high priests and kings over cities and rulers over nations. It's a story where Jesus is born to parents who have no notoriety whatsoever when they're chosen. Joseph is a nobody. Mary is a nobody. They're wonderful people, faithful people. But nobody would have looked at them in their early years and said definitively, hey, them, I know they're going to be the ones. God may be looking at you the exact same way. You may have to embrace the idea that God is going to do something incredible through you. Are you ready? Do you have the faith? Are you familiar with the word? Are you ready? He's chosen nondescript people before. He may do it again. You may be those people. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Fascinating to think about what it means for him to elevate the humble. This is something that's happened all throughout the Bible. Rahab the harlot is elevated. She's in the pantheon of all the faithful there in Hebrews chapter 11. David is a shepherd. He's watching sheep. He's elevated to the throne over Jerusalem. Uh, James and John and Andrew or Peter are fishermen, right? And they're elevated. Pillars now of the church for all history. Mary is a girl with no reputation at all. And she says by her own account here, I will be remembered forever and ever and ever. They will call me blessed. This is Mary's story. This is your story. This is your story too. Whoever you are, the thought that you could be raised from an enemy of God to a child of God, that you could go from walking on dirt to walking on streets of gold, that you could go from toiling against the earth like Adam had to do to feasting at the table of the king, 
those who would respond in fear and faith will be elevated. And those who hold on to their own rights, to their own posture, to their own agenda, they'll be humbled. Now you see here already, we're not just talking about stuff. We've descended into a slightly deeper depth here. We're not just talking about being elevated to things. We're talking about being elevated to him. It's not just that you were poor. It's not just that you were unknown. It's not just that you hadn't done anything remarkable. It's that you were sinful. You were unholy. You were rebellious. And he has elevated you into righteousness. That he has elevated you into holiness. And that he has elevated you to him. That's the real elevation. And ironically, the way that he elevates us is by humbling himself. He comes in human flesh. Finally, she reflects on how the Lord hasn't forgotten his promises that he's made to Israel. She says, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring, she knows, she knows the Bible so well. How does Mary respond? How does she respond to the angel? How does she respond to Elizabeth? She sings. She sings worshipfully. She's wise in the word. She extols the virtues of her Savior. Every year we get Jeff Collins to sing, Mary, Did You Know? That's a great song. As long as everybody in the room is going, yeah, pretty much. So here she is, wise and beautiful and incredible, well beyond her years, full of faith, mature, and on and on and on, and on the edge of a cliff of circumstances beyond her capacity to control. She trusts in the Lord. She's faithful. But it's not her story. It's not really her story. It's God's story. And we can't forget that. It, it, it's easy for us to look down our noses at those in the world who lose Christ in Christmas, right? And, and you start thinking about Santa, and you start thinking about Jingle Bells, and you start thinking about uh, reindeer with uh, obnoxiously bright proboscises, right? And you start thinking about, you know, how is Kevin going to get the guys out of the house? Always oh, going to crush up all the ornaments, and he's going to set the guy's head on fire. And does maple syrup really taste good on spaghetti, right? These are the kinds of things we can get lost in. And you can look at a lost world and go, it's so easy to get lost in that. But if you're not careful, you can get lost in the story of angels and shepherds and Mary and Joseph and forget Jesus altogether. Uh, because I am the most boring person I know, I was watching TV the other night, and there was a documentary on about cathedrals. And they were talking about the difference between cathedrals in England versus cathedrals in France. And they were talking about the cathedral in Chartres in France. And because of the way that it was designed in the flying buttresses and all the rest, it was an architectural marvel. It's got the, the, the widest nave of any cathedral in France. And it's uh, built in honor of Notre Dame, uh, our Mother Mary, right? 
And if you look at the sculpture right there as you walk into the front doors of this massive cathedral, you'll see right above the doors, maybe 12 or 15 feet up, there's a, a sculpture of two thrones. On the right is Jesus. And on the left, if not higher than exactly level, is who? It's Mary. And the inscription right below it reads, Notre Dame, Mary, our mother, Queen of Heaven. How terribly sad. They have lost Christ in a forest full of Mary. Mary's incredible. Joseph is incredible. Elizabeth is incredible. Zechariah is incredible. The angels are majestic. The shepherds are obedient. Everyone is rejoicing. But it's not their story. Not really. It's Jesus' story. Lean on Joseph. Learn something from Mary. Bring all of the scripture and let it transform your heart and your mind. But let all of those figures act like a layover. You're not stopping there. The destination is communion with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Visit Mary and Joseph. But don't forget where you're really headed. We're headed to Christ. It's his story. This grand epic of him redeeming the world. Father, I pray this morning that you would allow us to not lose Christ for anything. That he would shine brighter than all of the other luminaries of the New Testament. That his praises would be sung louder. That his work, his agenda, his saving power would be first and foremost in all of our rejoicing. In Jesus' name, amen.